Well hello and good morning and welcome to Passing the Baton Series 3 and this will be number 34 and the date is the 27th of February 2010. It comes under the heading of Living an Intentional Lifestyle and the title of this particular session is Image to Likeness. So let's have a prayer shall we before we start and commit ourselves to the Lord. Father thank you. Father, thank you that you are in control of all things and that, Father, even if our lives feel like they're spiralling out of control, they're not. Because you're so vast and so gracious and you are in control of everything. So we rest our hearts on the fact that you are in control of all things, no matter what surrounds our lives right now. So, Father, I ask for peace to rest upon us. I ask for a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you to come upon us mightily as we study your eternal purposes that we might be transformed into the image and likeness of your son and we ask it in Jesus name and for his sake Amen so as I studied and sought the Lord for this session I became increasingly convinced that what he wants to talk to us about is essentially what used to be called the deeper life. In these days it's called the love walk. By this I mean there's a place in God where we are reduced to love alone, where we live a life of exchange, his life for ours. So that with Paul we can say, as he did in Galatians 2.20, and I'm reading from the King James Version now, it's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And when I speak about love, I don't mean sentimentality or natural love, but the kind of tough love the Father showed when he asked Jesus to be our holy scapegoat and take away our sin and the kind of love that accepted that assignment. Love that is prepared to lay its life down for the sake of others. Uh, but if we are to embark on this road, we must first know the love of Christ for us personally. It must infuse our whole being. We must be convinced of his love towards us, as it's this divine impetus that causes our character to change and transforms us into his likeness. So there's nothing casual or superficial about where we're going. Being intentional towards God will mean making choices, sometimes radical choices, and being prepared to change, and that sometimes radically. Having only one agenda for our lives, his, because we know we are the beloved, and our desire is now towards him. 1 John 4.19 in the New American Standard Bible puts it like this, We love because he first loved us. For our life in Christ to prosper and his life in us to flourish, there are but two requirements. We must believe what he says about us and we must place him first above all other things. Our attention must be focused upon him. 
He simply must occupy the prior position in our lives. Intimacy with him is imperative. Times of quiet meditation on his nature will result in the very character of Jesus being transmitted and transferred to us. Quite simply, what we behold, we become. This teaching will not be for those who seek an easy road or respectfully those who want their ears tickled, but those who truly desire to be conformed to his image and bear his likeness and are prepared to suffer if necessary to accomplish this. To know him, love him, serve him, obey him becomes the ultimate fulfilment in life because in very deed the first commandment has become first for us, that we should love him with all our hearts, souls, minds and strength and go on to love our neighbour as ourselves. So in this session we'll be looking at these things, loving ourselves, loving God and finally loving others. But know this beloved, whatever you choose it will not affect how he feels about you. He loves you all the way, all the time. He has set his love on you and his love is not affected by your response. It's not affected by whether you desire him or not. He loves you because he loves you. He has chosen to love you. It pleased the Father to set his love upon you and to bless you whether you respond to him or not. It pleased the Father to allow Jesus to suffer that we might be made whole. Isaiah 53, 10 and 11 in the King J New King James Version says this, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He's put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And he shall see the labour of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. You are dear to him, and it is his desire to change you into his likeness, fill you with his love, holiness and power, that you may do the things Jesus did when he walked the earth, and greater things than these but he gives you the choice. Jesus came with the good news of the kingdom. He came declaring for all who could hear, hey folks, the king is here. And he proved it, not only with signs following, but by fulfilling every prophecy that had ever been spoken of him. He didn't come preaching the church or the fellowship. He came preaching, repent, change your heart, change your mind. For the kingdom of God is here. He came to put a face on God so that we might know him. John 17.3 in the Amplified says this, and this is eternal life. It means to know, to perceive, recognize, become acquainted with and understand you, the only true and real God, 
and likewise to know him, Jesus, as the Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah, whom you have sent. Jesus came to put a face on God, and we are here to put a face on Jesus. Jesus came preaching the kingdom, telling us this is what heaven is like, and he taught us to ask that that kingdom would come on earth. Matthew 6.10 Two things at this point though. There is no condemnation for wherever we are right now. Jesus dealt with all that on the cross. And there is help. A quickening spirit abroad in the earth, which if we will say yes, will bring us up to speed. So there's no blame. God's eyes are brilliant. They're shiny when he looks upon us. This is all about getting us to the place of saying yes faster. This is just another way of saying Matthew 6.33. And again, I'm reading from the Amplified. But seek, aim at and strive after. First of all, his kingdom and his righteousness, his way of doing and being right. And then all these things taken together will be given to you besides. Seek first and only the kingdom of God, and all these other things will be added to you. Jesus' followers at this point were worried about their daily needs, but he reassures them that if they seek first his kingdom and righteousness, everything else that everyone else seeks will be added to them automatically. The Lord will add all these things. He knows our needs. Jesus' last prayer was that we would become one with him and his heavenly Father and one with each other in thought, word and deed. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit will open your eyes to see Jesus afresh and as you see him, desire him and as you behold his glory that you will be changed by that glory into his image. Jesus said in John seventeen twenty to 23 I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may not believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Have you ever thought about that? that God loves us in the same way as he loves Jesus? It's worth stopping and thinking about really. So having said all that, I need to repeat the statement I made last month and we'll keep coming back to this to remind ourselves who we are and where God has placed us. He won't leave us alone until we understand who we are and where we are. This is the principle of life in the spirit. We are his by virtue of blood, the shed blood of Jesus on the cross. We belong to him. 
we are not our own, we were bought at a price from the slave market of sin and Satan. And that blood has dealt with all our shortcomings and washed away all our sin. We have a new start. We're learning to keep the first commandment first, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength, and the second commandment to love our neighbour as ourselves. During this session God may pinpoint areas of healing he wants you to deal with. Be open to him and ready to receive. We aren't where we're going yet, we're on our way remember. And our mission statement for 2010 is this, that we're going to move into a radically new perspective in God and begin to understand the power that is behind us as well as the power that is within us. We will also learn that as we stand on the word of God, we're standing on the evil one. We will practice confession and proclamation and we will learn to position ourselves before God in order that we may prevail. We will stand up, stand upon and stand against and we will prevail. That's the good news. So, God is cyclical. Have you ever noticed that things seem to go around and come around? This is because God is circular in his movements. Everything begins with him and ends with him. He works within us in cycles, bringing us into ever-increasing intimacy and closeness with him each time we go around the cycle. He takes us round these cycles all the time and they overlap. The cycle of revelation, your personal walk with him and his revelation of who he wants to be for you may overlap with your cycle of development or your work or ministry cycle. If you're in tune with your own walk you will be able to identify where you are in these cycles. It's all to do with his process with us. God's all about process. In other words, your growth and development. Each cycle has its stage of pleasure and pain, achievement and suffering, weakness and power, worship and surrender. Because we are finite, limited beings, we tend to be linear in our thinking. We think in straight lines and we're consecutive in our movements. For instance, we start and finish a book begin and end each workday, we look forward and back on events and we measure our progress by time and what we produce. For example, do I have enough time to do this? What do I have to do to fit in a break? How long will it take me? We work to deadlines. We've got fixed points to which we work. If we're creative, we move through the various stages to create what's in our hearts. When we travel, we move from place to place, defining a point of departure and focusing on a time of arrival. Our journey is linear from one place to another. God isn't like this, he's circular. Everything starts with him and ends with him. Romans 11.36 tells us this in the New King James Version. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. 
Amen. And besides this, he's doing lots of things all at once. He's both simultaneous and spontaneous. There's no beginning and no end with God because he's the Alpha and the Omega. Everything begins and ends in him and he's doing stuff all the time. When God begins something in your life, it has a beginning in him and it's only accomplished when it ends up in him. What is more, he exists outside of time and therefore his purpose is accomplished as soon as it is conceived. He can talk about your future from your present because he stands in your future, in who you are becoming. God does not measure time, he measures growth and you can make as much growth as you want by the choices you make. Everything is real the moment God speaks it. A word from him and it's real. If you have the promise or the prophecy, you have the reality. To live in this realm, we first have to be drawn by him. Then we have to be instructed by the Holy Spirit how to work with the flow of what he's doing. And part of that instruction will be to teach you how God thinks and how he likes to work. For instance, if we try to get into his presence without the Holy Spirit leading us, we come into strife and performance. We have to be taught by the Holy Spirit and learn how to work with the flow of God. This is bad news for you if you don't find it easy to learn. If you resent being taught, and some do, you have to ask the Lord for a teachable spirit. So the Holy Spirit teaches us how God thinks and works. My ways, God says, are not your ways. You and I are incompatible and I don't change. So choosing to change is part of making progress on this journey. When you come into the presence, whatever is not surrendered will surface and you'll feel incredibly vulnerable. Don't worry. Isaiah had the same experience in Isaiah 6, 1-5 and I'm reading here from the NIV. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. From this revelation to Isaiah, the next moment he's joining in with a conversation with God in heaven, and he's saying, I'll go, send me. When we see the Lord, we can't help offering ourselves. We can't help surrendering. We're undone, unravelled, ruined in the presence of his beauty 
and His Majesty. Changing the subject a little, I want to talk about pieces. P-I-E-C-E-S Each one of us is a jigsaw puzzle. Each one of us is also a piece in a larger puzzle. Everyone has a piece missing in our walk with God. None of us are yet complete. We're like that jigsaw puzzle, not yet completed. We're a work in progress. So be patient with yourself. God is. The missing pieces in our lives are where we are not quite like Jesus. These will be the areas on which the Holy Spirit will be working and which you will talk, be talking to you about. And they're different for all of us. In order to accelerate your progress, it's good if you ask the Lord just what piece he's working on right now, in order that you can uh, cooperate with him in the completion of the puzzle. Because his purpose for you is that you might bear the likeness of his Son, so that you might be conformed to his image. Romans 8.29, New American Standard Bible For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. That's God's statement of intent. As the puzzle comes together, so we walk in more and more of the fullness of the image and likeness of Christ. So wouldn't that be a good idea to find out just what the Lord is requiring of you today and declaring that you want to work with him? So here's a prayer which has intentionality behind it. Remember the whole overall title of this year is living an intentional lifestyle and this is a thought through faith response to father's wooing of you don't pray it if you don't mean it it's a declaration of intent your intent matching his intentionality towards you heavenly father lord jesus I'm overwhelmed by your goodness, kindness and love, by your mercy, long-suffering and grace. I'm overwhelmed by who you are, the lover of my soul. With focused desire I seek you today. With predetermined intention I draw closer to your heart and position myself to seek your face. Bring me into alignment with your truth. Give me the revelation of your fullness that I might embrace it in this new season. Whatever my unique piece, I proclaim that you are the master builder. You hold the key pieces that complete me and you will set them in place. I believe and declare this is the divinely appointed time for these missing pieces to be revealed. The puzzle over my life will be completed and I will behold the full beauty of the picture that you have created from your perspective, not mine. I will no longer be earthbound in my thinking. I will enter into a place of peace and rest. By faith I am wholly restored and complete. My influence to do good will increase 
exponentially. I come into agreement with the next chapter of the book you have already written over me as I walk into my prophetic destiny. I choose to become all you have purposed that I should. I love you with all my heart. I say yes to your goodness. I say yes to the missing pieces you are setting in place over me. I say yes Lord, yes, so be it. Amen. If you aren't ready to pray that yet, don't worry. We're all in different places at differing stages of growth and development. The purpose of this teaching is that you may encounter God at an ever-deepening level and experience Him as you have never done before. To set all this in place, you need to know who you are and whose you are. Therefore, I must emphasize that when your intimacy with the Father is broken, you do not cease to belong to Him. He doesn't cast you off. What happens is that your three basic needs, those for security, identity and belonging, have been disrupted. But our Father's covenant love is strong and eternal and always flowing towards us. He's forever seeking us. Adam, where are you? Though Adam and Eve broke covenant with him in the garden, he never ceased to call them back to himself. The same applies to us. When we choose the things of the world, when we choose to go our own way, our salvation is not lost. Our intimacy, our connection, our relationship with him is. This grieves the Father's heart. He's not angry with us. Jesus took God's wrath fully on the cross. Like the prodigal son, we've run away from home. When the son returned, it was the father who saw him from a long way off and ran towards him and welcomed him with open arms, just as God stands ready to welcome us as we return and seek to restore our relationship with him. So be at peace, be at rest, beloved. The elderly and distinguished father in the story abandoned caution and decorum and literally ran down the path to find his boy, giving him the robe, security, and the ring, identity, and the sandals, belonging. He was not restored to being one of his father's slaves as he asked, but to his father's side and to his father's table. Do you remember this from last session, that uh, little word about being a son, headed up a son, went like this. My child, you are mine. I call you this day into sonship and every day to take up your position in my family, for you are my son and in you do I delight. I have set my love upon you, yes, my plans, my ambitions, my love. Think you that I said to my own beloved son, you are my son this day, I have begotten you? This is true, I said it of him and of every son since. Take up your sonship daily, daily shall you enter into your place. 
Did I not say, Bring the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet? Did the son do anything to merit his sonship? Was he a worthy son? Yet I set my love upon him, and wooed him to myself. Come then, take your place, the offered garment, even the robe of rejoicing and delight. Take the ring of union with me, and display delight in it. Let me wash your feet, then take the offered sandals, and walk through this day as a king's son. Your feet will become soiled, and I have made provision for this, but keep your heart with all diligence. Be a son, ask as a son, give as a son, reign as a son, rejoice as a son, move freely as a son should. Rejoice even as my heart rejoices in you. The past is forgotten and behind you. The day is yours. Go forth. Bear the radiance of the divine in your countenance. See, I have stripped from you the robe of rags. I have put on you the robe of my righteousness, the beautiful garments that shall be the envy of all that see them, even as Joseph's coat aroused in others envy. So shall others want to know the Lord your God. Rejoice, O oh, rejoice in your welcome, in your position, in your forgiveness, in the joy of your Father, in the joy of the angels, for he gives you richly all things to enjoy. Rejoice, and again I say, rejoice. The tender mercies and compassion of the Lord are surpassing great. They never cease to amaze me. He is amazing. I want to talk a little now about the parable of the wedding feast and the people who God invited, who produced all sorts of uh, lame excuses, incidentally, for not attending. In Jesus' day, when you were invited to a wedding, you received not only an invitation but a robe, which you were intended to wear on the day of the wedding. If you didn't wear this wo robe, or robe, you were not considered to be part of the celebration. And Jesus tells it like this in Matthew 22, at 2 to 10. Reading now from the New uh, International Version. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet, those were the Jews, to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle have been butchered and everything's ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. This actually happened in Jerusalem, A.D. 70. That's a little insert there. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners, invite to the banquet anyone you find. That's us, folks. 
So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. As we read on, we see there were those who were thrown out from the banquet because they gained entry to the wedding but weren't wearing the wedding garment. These were those who trusted in their own efforts to get themselves to God. You can't trust in your own righteousness, but only that of Jesus Christ, which is the free gift of God to us, the robe. But when the king came in, reading from verse 11 now, to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, throw him into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Reading further, you'll see at this point the Pharisees left Jesus and henceforth plotted how they could get rid of him. He had met religion head on. He was telling them in no uncertain terms, you will not get into my kingdom on your good works of righteousness. Salvation is a gift. So who did respond to the invitation? And the answer is in the Gospel of Luke, Luke 14, 13 to 24, again the NIV, headed up the parable of the great banquet. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I've just got married so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, Go out to the roads and the country lanes and make them come in, so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those men who are invited to the banquet will get a taste of it. Of course, Jesus was talking to the Jews in the context of this par parable, uh, and it gives us a beautiful picture of those who actually accepted the invitation. The poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. The ones, in other words, who couldn't reciprocate the invitation. They couldn't give the master of the feast anything because they had nothing and they knew it. The point I'm making here is that every one of us comes into one of these categories. 
The crippled are those of us struggling with physical, moral or spiritual weaknesses, hardly able to keep up with the pressures of life. The blind, which describes most of us, are incapable of seeing spiritual things. We have eyes, but we see very little. The lame are simply unable to walk out all the teachings on how to live a Christian life. They struggle with internal conflicts and habit patterns which appear to weaken their walk with the Lord. Jesus invited us to the banquet and we responded. He's already made provision for all our weaknesses because he always knew what was in us and he doesn't clean his fish until after they're caught. The Father wants us to demonstrate to a hurting world what his love is really like. He wants us to teach them a better way of living and a better way of loving. However, if we don't understand the free gift that God has given us in Christ, we will continually create a gospel of our own. And the gospel we attempt to give others will be mixed with our own pain, wounds and disappointments. It's rather like saying God absolutely adores you, but you need to know you're going through the worst time the world has ever known. But you'll get there if you hold on, if you endure. Good news? I think not. I refer, of course, to the view that the church will go through the Great Tribulation. And that, beloved, is not good news. Neither, incidentally, is it the truth. If you want to know more about this, you'll need to get hold of the teachings on the book of Revelation, which are available to download from the website, or you can contact me through the site, www.psalm131.com. God's kingdom doesn't function in mixture. A little of our righteousness and a little of his, or a measure of truth and a pinch of error, a little of his love and a little of ours. Again, a mixture of the two covenants, a little of the law and a little of grace, doesn't produce the freedom of the gospel. Neither does it release God's promises and our inheritance to us. To whatever extent we use mixture, we do not represent him but ourselves. 1 Corinthians 1.30 NIV now says this, You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. We have freely received from the Father the righteousness of Christ, bought for us by his death and resurrection. He exchanged our unrighteousness for his perfect righteousness. Therefore, freely we are able to give the good news to others. The moment we believe Jesus for our righteousness, striving ceases and we're released from any accusation that Satan may make towards us. Any failure on our part is absorbed by Jesus, so we are free to fail. We're free to make mistakes. 
without being buried alive under a mound of guilt and condemnation. And we can in turn freely forgive and absorb the failures and mistakes of others in the same way as our mistakes and failures have been absorbed by him. This, beloved, is the freedom that Christ came to, gave us, came to give us. This is the good news of the gospel. The people who refused the invitation in the parable were those who considered themselves in need of nothing. As a direct result of this attitude, Jesus said that the publicans and prostitutes would enter his kingdom before the religious pretenders of the day. Hypocrites, actors, Jesus called them. As lovingly as I can, I ask you today, are you a hypocrite? Are you a religious pretender? Or are you free to fail? Can you allow others to fail? Are you living in the freedom and grace that Jesus' robe of righteousness bestows upon you? Or are you still under law, under the old covenant of works, not grace? Or are you perhaps somewhere in between? Beloved, we're all Pharisees being healed to a greater or lesser extent. We all operate in judgment rather than mercy. But it's as we realise and recognise our inclusion in Christ that we begin to understand how to put on Christ. We only have one garment to wear, the wedding garment, which is the righteousness of Christ Jesus. Righteousness is right living. It's in this covering that we have confidence and freedom. It's clothed in this garment we are freed from shame, guilt, striving and effort. Beloved, we are covered over with a robe of righteousness that Jesus gives to us. Martin Luther said this, Now is this not a happy business? Christ the rich, noble and holy bridegroom takes in marriage this poor, contemptible and sinful little prostitute, takes away all of her evil and bestows all his goodness upon her. It's no longer possible for sin to overwhelm her, for she is now found in Christ and is swallowed up by him so that she possesses a rich righteousness in her bridegroom. Keep these things in mind as we travel on this year. We're going to establish ourselves in these things. Security, identity and belonging. The robe, the ring and the sandals. At the risk of repeating myself, unless we know who we are and whose we are and how valuable we are, everything will seem not only hard but unattainable and our Christian walk will be an uphill struggle. It is absolutely imperative that we see ourselves as God sees us, secure in Christ and sons of God. 
Remember, God calls the things that are not as though they are, so he sees us as sons, fully mature. He speaks to us present future. He speaks from where he stands, from where he holds the books of our future. This doesn't imply that we're all fully mature right now. Believing and being born again is but the first step on our journey. But what it does tell us is that we are his offspring. We are related by blood to him and therefore we have security, identity and belonging, if we'll believe it. The rest is the process of our walk with God in day-to-day -day communion with the Holy Spirit, from a nepios, a child without speech, to a huios, a fully mature son who has been attested by God and has Daddy's checkbook. We're all on this journey into the heart of the Almighty. That's why I spoke about the missing piece at the beginning. What piece is he working on with you? The story of the thief on the cross gives us important insight into how the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us the moment we believe. It's reckoned to our account. It's implanted in us. We have it. Here is a hardened criminal who was sentenced to death by the Romans at the same time as Jesus. He deserved the sentence. But what he got, and all he had, was an encounter with Jesus on the cross, which gives us a glimpse into the magnitude of God's grace and forgiveness the instant we believe, and proves beyond doubt that it isn't based upon our performance as a Christian. This thief believed in his heart and confessed with his mouth one simple sentence. Luke 23, 42 and 43 in the New American Standard. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. This thief missed the whole of his Christian walk and service. He did no good works at all. He never prayed a thing. He never attended a meeting. He never tithed, but he was welcomed into the kingdom that very day. This is the amazing grace of God in which we are meant to walk. The thief on the cross is an example of how much we are loved and accepted simply by believing who Jesus is and accepting our need of him. Beloved prodigals all, we can do nothing to earn our way home. And the way we come in is the way we go on. The ultimate battle in your spiritual life will be your confidence in the finished work of the cross. Confidence in the wedding garment, not in your own ability to do anything. 
While I was preparing this, I had a waking dream. In it, I was trying to explain something and was getting very frustrated. I ended up twice waking up with the same thought, that it was like driving a manual car with a gearbox which didn't have power steering versus driving an automatic which did. The parallel is obvious. If you are still striving to reach something, to become something, to attain something in your Christian walk, to be somewhere, to get somewhere, you're driving a manual car and it's uphill all the way because Father has already placed you in the one place where you can get all your needs met and all your prayers answered in Christ. You simply have to believe it. Jesus has given you everything and the Holy Spirit, well, he's power steering. Paul puts it this way in his letter to the Galatian church who was somewhat missing their way too. In Galatians 3, 1-3 and 26-29, New American Standard. Headed up, faith brings righteousness. And Paul says to them, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Faith, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Verse 26 For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptised into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek there's neither slave nor free man, there's neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Beloved, set this jewel of revelation in the context of your identity in the Beloved, so that as you walk in unbroken communion with him, you will discover your truest identity and your destiny and purpose and you will begin to match the intentionality of God towards you with your intentional desires towards him and you'll be driving the automatic not the manual when God came to us in Christ he came as a gift that must be received by faith Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, New American Standard again. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Even if we say to God, leave me alone, his response is always the same. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Hebrews 13, 5b. So, having established our security and sonship, which is belonging, what about our identity? And I've headed this next bit up, brace yourselves for a shock, loving ourselves versus toxic shame. This is often nothing to do with God and how he feels about us, but everything to do with how we feel 
about ourselves. Some of us have turned in on ourselves with such force that we are paralysed with fear, disgust and self-loathing, even sometimes to the point of thoughts of self-harm and suicide. We may experience strong urges to run and hide, as well as the desperate need to find someone else to blame for our own failures. We have an inner wall upon which we write graffiti about ourselves, and we never wipe it off. This, beloved, is toxic shame identified. Feelings about ourselves that no one else can see. It's a subterranean form of shame which flows deeply from what we think about ourselves in the most secret places of our personality. Manifestations of this are self-rejection, self-hatred, lack of self-worth, low self-esteem, bitterness, resentment, anger, frustration with ourselves and others, a critical mouth and judgmental thought life, free-floating anxiety and fear, to name just a few. Hidden shame often also manifests in sudden bursts of anger or rage, which when the button is pressed releases a volcano which spews out anger, bitterness and rage towards others, but essentially towards ourselves, because it stems, it is rooted in how we see ourselves. Beloved, we are doing the devil's work for him. We are in agreement with him, not God, about who we really are. Surprisingly, this is a very serious and prevalent issue in the body of Christ. Many, many Christians are trapped in this prison of self-rejection, self-hatred and low self-esteem, where they do not see themselves as he sees them. Sometimes that which is turned in on ourselves is so strong we would rather destroy ourselves than surrender to God and his purposes. These persistent, gnawing thoughts that we have no value, or even thoughts about taking our own life, are magnified by each succeeding situation as the devil drives home his opinion of you. Everything is magnified beyond all proportion. You can magnify with a microscope or with a telescope. A microscope magnifies by making tiny things look bigger than they are. Satan is past master at making mountains out of molehills. Remember, he is the accuser of the brethren. A telescope, on the other hand, magnifies by ma making gigantic things like stars, which look tiny, appear more as they really are. Beloved, if you are against yourself, an enemy has done this. You are still living in what happened to Adam and Eve. You're still running away from home and the only place of safety inside the heart of God. You're driven by a demonic assignment to prevent you fulfilling your destiny. How long are you going to be lunch for the enemy? Dust is his food, remember? 
God's intention that creation should be in harmony with him was shredded at the fall. This rupture in the relationship created inside Adam and Eve deep feelings of insecurity, illegitimacy, rejection, anxiety, fear and self-hatred. They ran, they hid, they shifted blame. Beloved one, if I've just described you, you're living in your Adamic, Adamic nature. You're living on the wrong side of the cross. You're living in striving and religion, in the old nature, not the new, not in grace and freedom. You're driving a manual, not an automatic. And you have a very deep need to visit the room of undoing. An eternal seed was planted in you at the rebirth. Your past is under the blood of the new covenant. You are a new creation in Christ. Let me just uh, explain the room of undoing. I'm sure they're all hanging on that and want to know what it means. This is where Jesus wants you to have fun. Yes, I said fun. This is where he wants you to smash all your preconceived ideas about yourself, where you fit and how others see you. It's where you deal with all the things you've said about yourself and the things others have said about you. Specifically, you deal with that graffiti that you've spent your lifetime writing because it is all under the blood. A friend of ours described a visit he had to this room. In the vision that he had, he walked along a corridor where people were patting him on the back and encouraging him. At the end of the corridor was a door covered with red sticky stuff. This stuff was all over the door, handle and all, and he said it was really plastered, but he felt he had to open the door and get hold of that handle so he touched the handle and looked down and duly he was covered with the red sticky stuff. Keep that in mind because everything behind the door is under the blood. In other words it's dealt with. As he walked through the door he entered a fairground with sideshows, smashed the plates a coconut shy, a giant shredder and a huge wall covered with graffiti. Jesus was there. He felt Jesus say, I want you to have fun doing this. The plates are the meals prepared for you to eat by others before you were born. Generational stuff. You need to smash those. The coconuts are wrong decisions you've made. You were nuts at the time. You need to remove those. The shredder is where all the things said about you or written about you can be shredded. And finally the wall of graffiti which you prepared with your very own hands needs washing off by you. He said he had a brilliant time smashing the plates and knocking the coconuts off their stands. They even fell off if he didn't hit them. The shredder too, when stuff was put in, gave a display of lights and colour that was amazing. 
he ended up covered in smashed plates, shredded paper and wet through from washing the wall. Both he and Jesus were laughing their heads off. So I ask again, do you need to visit the room of undoing? If you do, make a date with Jesus to meet him there and keep it. God knew the only way to restoration was to require us to accept and believe the fact that he has already given us security, identity and belonging in his Son and to require us to obey his command to love him, ourselves and others. Beloved, God gives us identity and value when he places his own love on us and plunges us into Christ. He planted an eternal seed in us at the new birth and now asks us to learn to live from that place, that seed, and to learn to love on these three levels, loving God, loving you and loving others. He covered our nakedness and shame with the righteousness of Christ, the wedding garment. In him we are accepted and received. We have a position, a destiny and a purpose, security, identity and belonging. If we remain in self-hatred, we remain in unbelief and more importantly, we hate something God loves. We are grossly out of alignment. He has given us value. Any thought of running, hiding or shifting blame, punishing ourselves or anything else has been dealt with. Beloved, we are short-sighted and blind. There's nothing we can do to make him love us more. And there is nothing we could do that would make, us, make him love us less. He loves us because he loves us. This is about him primarily, not us. From the foundation of the earth, God has planned a people for himself who will be like him both in image and likeness. It's his plan, beloved. If you are one of those who feel that you deserve to go the hard way, Jesus cannot rescue you. You're destined to reproduce your core belief that you don't deserve what God is giving you, that somehow you must work for it, that you are unworthy. You will be a self-fulfilling prophecy, attracting to yourself failure, sickness and poverty. There's a better way, beloved. It takes courage, boldness and trust to deny yourself the luxury of staying with your old belief system. There are choices and changes to be made. Don't make God a liar. He's given you both value and purpose. Allow Father access to your deepest need, even if you don't completely believe he knew what he was doing when he set his love on you. He really does know that we are poor, crippled, blind and lame. 
if you will allow him, if you will let him, he will reveal the antidote to self-hatred and hidden shame and teach you how to love God and yourself and in time, others.